I Could Murder a Podcast is proudly part of the ACAST Creator Network. For hundreds of extra minisodes and other content, along with our private Discord server and live Q&As, exclusive merch and much more, consider subscribing to icmap.co.uk. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to I Can Murder a Podcast. We are back once again. And I'm sitting opposite. Here we go. The jaunty, jabbering, jarring, jumpy, jittery Ben Carter. I think that's the nicest one so far. I will 100% take that. I am jumpy. Emotional wreck. Well, no, I'll take the J's. Thank you. I don't need the EW. <laughs> How are we doing, boys? Hey, very good. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm back on the, on the widescreen this, this episode. Oh. Uh, anybody who's watching the YouTube... Uh, channel last week i was a little bit small on your screen but um i'm back in it yeah it's nice to see back more of you uh, thank you you're welcome and tom yeah i'm very good thank you uh happy to be back once again happy to get a little bit spooky with you boys mm, uh, yeah i was thinking just before we came on the timing couldn't be better because producer dan has very kindly just got us some new audio uh, equipment and software and uh, it comes with a whole box of tricks doesn't it <sighs> go on then I can't get there as quick as Tom can. Um, <laughs> Spooky. There we go. That's that's more like a virus in your computer, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Rather than what we're doing, but uh, yeah, we, yeah, we've got a, a lot of annoying little buttons that I'm sure we're gonna get right in your ear holes with during this series. Which uh, yeah, all thanks to producer Dan. So please send your hate mail to him. But um, we are back once again, and yeah, this case is a little bit different. But we thought this series, as Ben said before, is going to be full of curveballs, curvy mm. balls, eh, Ben? Definitely, yeah, very curvy, very curvy, very curvy, and very creepy this week. Creep ball. Carter's curvy balls. That's okay again. Lumpy and bumpy, mm. Carter's curvy balls. It's not curvy if they're lumpy and bumpy. Yeah, it's because it makes wobbly wobblies. Oh. Okay, fantastic. And lads, check your balls. Thank you. Ben's checking them now. <laughs> <laughs> So this week's case is the Enfield Haunting, also known as the case of Janet and Margaret Hodgson, the Enfield Portergeist, the Hodgson Family Haunting, and the Groaning Ghost of Green Street. I thought that sounded nice, that last one, so I threw that into the hat. Could be good with an effect. <sighs> I think we've already used it. <laughs> it reminds me of Andy Bernard singing the, um, singing Sweeney Todd. Oh, yeah. The Groaning Ghost of <laughs> Green Street. <laughs> 
But yes, we are back. we thought, yeah, mix it up this series. Um, so this is going to be a very different case to our usual. I'm sure people are aware of it. Maybe not our UK listeners. Maybe they don't know anything about the Enfield Hauntings. So we're happy to guide you through this. And before we do jump into this week's episode, we just wanted to say that if you are starving for more content uh, from ICMAP, then why not head over to our website, which is icmap.co.uk, wherein at the time of recording, we have around 150 episodes. And we have done some kind of spooky ones on there as well. So very on brand for this week's case. I think we've covered the Amateurville horror story origin. We have a couple of tiers over there that are literally less than a cup of coffee. And there's a whole host of extra perks on there as well. We do monthly live streams. We've got merch. And uh, it's a good, good time. Speaking of coffee, you could also buy a mug like this on icmp.co.uk. Wowzers. That looks a whole lot of fun. It's a hot coffee, Tom. Um, Be careful with it. Uh, Why don't you buy one? Think about it. Whole lot of fun. And yes, guys, just so you know, we do call them minisodes over there, but they are about 45 minutes, some are longer, so they aren't really that many after all. But anyway, back to today's case, we're going to be starting with Danny Boy, giving us a little bit of a set in the scene, Danny Boy. Woo! You're like a campfire. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, sorry, sorry. <laughs> The Enfield Poltergeist remains one of the most chilling and well-documented cases of paranormal activity in modern history. First appearing in 1977, the Hodgson family residing in the town of Enfield, North London, experienced a series of inexplicable and terrifying events. Objects moved seemingly on their own, furniture appeared to levitate, and the family claimed to witness disturbing phenomena, including unexplained knocks, disembodied voices, as well as haunting instances of the Roy Hodgson... Fuck's sake. Let's not take the piss here. (laughs) as well as the haunting instances of Hodgson children levitating and becoming possessed. The case drew the attention of paranormal investigators, including the infamous Ed and Lorraine Warren, and became the subject of extensive media coverage. Despite scepticism and debates about the authenticity and the reality of the events, the Enfield poltergeist leaves behind a lingering sense of the unknown and the inexplicable. Yeah, so I mean, going into this, I was one of the ones that knew nothing about this. When I asked Tom about it, it was like, look at those pictures. Very disturbing, but also I can completely understand the sceptics and non-believers in this case. But there are some very interesting dynamics going on and interesting characters involved, which I found really, really fascinating about this week's case. Yeah, it's it's one that um, I remember, I don't know, I remember watching like an old Channel 5 program on it years ago when I was young and hearing the kind of audio recordings which we'll discuss and some of the the still images were taken and the kind of hysteria around it and I kind of it's always been like that was very odd and since then there's been horror films you know based around it or even you know doing a depiction of this case um so yeah I think it's one that's always been you know just a bit intriguing so I thought it'd it'd be a good one to share with people I'm sure a lot of people have heard have heard it before um, heard of it before but um, it's you know it's one that I think you know it's got a lot, a lot to it so it'd be a good one to, to deep dive in with you boys absolutely and as always we've got a quote to start us off and this one comes from investigative journalist James Hogg um, he's got a very good voice just like Dan and he spent several days with the Hodgson family in every story of things that go bump in the night there are two possibilities one that it's a hoax two that there's something going on beyond the grasp of the human mind. If this is a hoax, it means that some of the 17 people who've seen things have been playing an elaborate and twisted joke on the others. If it isn't a hoax, it means that 
Either those 17 people have all been having hallucinations, including the police, or this is the best documented ghost story of all time. So, as we mentioned, for all the kind of sceptics and non-believers and people that think that these these two girls were just essentially taking the piss, um, we will we will cover all the potential flaws and arguments against this case, as well as some of the conspiracies involved as we go through our timeline. But it's an interesting one, and it's it's a case unlike no other that we've covered so far. So I'm excited to, to jump in this one with you, boys. You're usually a big old sceptic, Ben, aren't you? Well, I was a bit more kind of, yeah, yeah, no, I am. You don't believe in anything, do you? Not really, no. <laughs> hmm. It's the lack of passion. I, uh, yeah, I have a very strong opinion about this case, um, but I, I'll save it till the end. I think Ooh. you can kind of gather my thoughts on this case, but it is still fascinating. Please listen to this episode. Yeah, I do have a very strong opinion on this case, but we'll uh, we'll we'll go back and forth at the end of the app. Yeah, but I told you it's inappropriate because she's very young in this. For fuck's sake! I like the way you float. <laughs> <laughs> Been here before. Mm. So as we always do, we're going to look into the early life in, in the case, but uh, this is covering children as well. So their early life, they're very much within it, Ben, aren't they? They are indeed. They are indeed. But I thought in order to understand the case itself, we've got to get a bit of background on the, the environment and the situation that the family found themselves in, which again is quite interesting. So should we jump into it? Yes, please. So today's case... Sur- oh, it's hot! Oh, it's hot. God. Ah. You're all right. Yeah. Hot. Yeah. Bit hot. Check your balls. That's going to be in there, isn't it? I put your balls in. Today's case surrounds the Hodgson family, made up of, at the time, 47-year-old single mother of four, Peggy Hodgson. Her two sons, 10-year-old Johnny and 7-year-old Billy, as well as her two daughters, who are very much the focal point of this case, 13-year-old Margaret and 11-year-old Janet. The working-class family who lived in a small, semi-detached house, number 284 Green Street, which was on a council estate in the neighbourhood of Brimsdown, Enfield, Bins down! Bins down! So sorry, everyone. So giggly. No, I'm obviously not having that in it. Were described as being very loud and very boisterous group, but one that got on well with their neighbours in the area. The house itself was made up of a ground floor of a living room, kitchen and bathroom, with three bedrooms upstairs. The North London town of Enfield, and the wider UK for that matter, was a very different place back in the 1970s. The UK had experienced a number of political, economic and social challenges throughout the decade, including, but not limited to, the industrial decline, a huge rise in unemployment, the feminist movement, continuous conflict in Northern Ireland, political uncertainty, rising inflation, social inequality and a housing crisis. And literally as I listed that off, I was like, it's not actually that different to now. Hey, you know, Ben, get you on, have got news for you. I am a bit political you sometimes. You look a bit like Ian Hislop. No, fucking hell. Fucking hell. <laughs> In a good way. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, there was a great deal of social unrest around London at the time. The poorer families found it increasingly more difficult to afford the basic necessities, including food and utilities, and they also faced limited access to education, healthcare and social services. Some impoverished neighbourhoods in London faced higher levels of crime and urban decay, and some parts of Enfield were impacted by this. The Hodgsons were no strangers to this, with the family living in cramped, poorly maintained council accommodation. The Hodgsons had encountered a great number of challenges prior to their paranormal experiences and the family home was most certainly not a happy one. Peggy had been through a fairly unpleasant divorce with the children's father two years before the events that we will go on to discuss, with their father, who we've really struggled to find much detail about, leaving Peggy for a much younger woman. 
This left the family in the borderline of poverty, then receiving state benefits in order to support themselves with their rented accommodation. Luckily for Peggy, her brother John lived a few houses down the street from her together with his wife Sylvia, with the pair often chipping in to support the family. Got some really old school names in here. We've got Peggy, Sylvia... Vic. Vic and Janet. Mmm. Lovely stuff. There's nothing else to say about that. Sorry about that. <laughs> the Hodgins were also extremely close with their neighbours Vic and Peggy Nottingham, who were also very supportive. Peggy also struggled to obtain consistent work, as was the case with many people during the economic instability of the 1970s in most parts of England. The Hodgson family father, who became estranged from his four children shortly after the divorce, made little to no effort to keep in touch with his children, and he made similar efforts to support them financially. This had a huge impact on all the Hodgsons, with 10-year-old Johnny even being sent away to a boarding school for children with emotional and behavioural difficulties. The remaining children often got into trouble in the neighbourhood and in their own schools, but it was only for acting out. A lot of different documentaries and podcasts point to the fact that there was little discipline within the family home from this moment onwards. It really did affect me. My daddy was hot. <laughs> hot? <laughs> My daddy was hot. <laughs> My daddy was hot-headed. We were all afraid of him and his temper. He had no patience with any of us, but then we all cried when he left. It was like there was absence. Something was missing. It hit me really hard. Looking back now, there was a lot of stress and tension in the family. We were living in council accommodation. By today's standards, we were very poor. We were growing up as best we could. These were the words of Janet Hodgson, the young girl at the core of the Enfield haunting. Clearly distraught after the traumatic experiences of her father leaving her mother and then seemingly abandoning her and her siblings in the process, Janet became extremely close with her older sister Margaret as a result. And yeah, a note definitely worth mentioning here, especially in the context of today's case. But yeah, according to uh, different clairvoyants, some posters on Reddit as well were very keen on this. It's a commonly believed uh, theory that poltergeist activity tends to occur after significant life events or major trauma. Dun, dun, dun. Mm. I mean, trauma is not a thing to joke about. Yeah, no, that is interesting. Because, yeah, it's people believe it's acting out, isn't it? And it's a way of dealing coping mechanisms to do that, with that. Yeah. But, yeah. Yeah, so many, I'm really interested. Dan, do you know much about this case? Sorry. I do not know. There's some bits I'm interested in to see what you think about it as well, from, from a vocal point of view. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Okay. Well, to argue this point about the activity occurring where uh, traumatic events have occurred, with the Hodgson children experiencing all of these difficulties at such a young age, it could be suggested that what would go on to happen was perhaps the result of children seeking attention of any kind in any way that they could. And this would only encourage and increase their misbehaviour as the attention continued to grow. Which, for me, that kind of rings true with, with this case and how it goes. There are some inexplicable bits, um, although, I yeah, I think Dan might be able to make them more splicable for us <laughs> please splicable them up yeah and another point to mention as well is at the time with the girls potentially acting out films and stories about paranormal activity were not far from their reach with the exorcist becoming a global sensation in 1973 and the inexplicable crimes of ronald defoe jr reaching mainstream news in late 1974 Ronald was convicted for murdering six members of his family, including his brothers, sisters and both of his parents, in Amityville, New York. Shortly afterwards, he blamed demons for his murder spree. 
We've done not really a mini, but a, a mighty episode on uh, on this case on our website, and it's a it's a fascinating case. This obviously later became the inspiration behind the 1977 book The Amateurville Horror, and news articles about both The Exorcist and The Amateurville Horror were frequent in the Daily Mirror at the time, and there were also um, kind of quite graphic articles about Ronald Defoe Jr.'s incredibly dark actions in this paper as well, and it was this newspaper that Peggy Hodgson would regularly purchase, and she would obviously leave them around the kitchen table which was not an unusual thing to do at the time and the daughters had easy and continued access to the daily mirror this led to a great deal of curiosity on the matters from both of the girls and though they claimed to have never seen the exorcist they were certainly more than aware of it and yeah amateurville at the time of recording i, I thought you boys might like this at the time of recording there are at least 45 movies that have since been made based around the amateurville horror which I thought was was staggering. And you can really, as you go down the list, you can tell they've started to milk it and run out of ideas because it also includes the Amateurville Scarecrow, Amateurville Deaf Toilet, Amateurville In The Hood, <laughs> and Amateurville Christmas Vacation. I also saw one called Amateurville Vibrator, but when I clicked on it, I was like, oh, won't bring that one up. <laughs> Save that one. Can you send me the link? <laughs> yeah, I got you. But yeah, probably the less said about that one, the better. Another element that may have contributed to Janet and Margaret's behaviour was a Christmas gift from their uncle John, just a year prior to the Enfield haunting. He gifted them the 1976 book, Fun and Games for Children. So that sounds fairly... Sounds lovely. Yeah, if I saw that, I'd be like, that's perfect for the kids. It's how I'd react. Which apparently made a reference to Ouija boards, which is less kiddie. A lot of opinions are, I've never done a Ouija board. Have either of you done a Ouija board? No. No. I'd like to, though. I would, yeah. Would you? Hundred percent. Yeah. Oh, maybe we maybe we'll do a Ouija board together. I would also like to say Candyman in the mirror five times at midnight and see what happens. Well, yeah, we can do that. We will sell that for you. Yeah. Should it be Sweet Man over here rather than Candyman? Sweet Man, Sweet Man. <laughs> it doesn't sound as scary. <laughs> it does. Just a really nice guy goes, "Hey, how you doing? Can I help you today? You look great. <laughs> Keep doing what you're doing. See you later." Don't know why he's American, but the girls, fascinated by the possibility of making contact with the spirit world, were able to get hold of a Ouija board in the months that followed. Don't you just draw it yourself? I guess you can buy them as well. And this is what many people believe truly kickstarted the events, or the alleged events, that would follow. The pair began to regularly play with the board after dark in their attic when their mother and brother had gone to sleep. And Janet would later claim that she believes this was a significant moment. Yeah, there's another interview with Janet where she claims that they couldn't get hold of a Ouija board and so they went to their neighbour's shed. Um, and apparently the neighbour had one in the shed. And they were playing and then they saw the face of a demon... Uh, appear at the shed window and that's when she Ooh. can pinpoint it back to which that would have been quite Alan Titchmarsh put a water feature there ho no pass me no <laughs> it's talking to the the garden should I crack on yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> there was always this presence in the house there was always something watching over you I never used to like going upstairs on my own it was like there was something there it was a feeling like it was behind me it started after Dad left us, and it just got worse and worse. As long as people don't meddle the way we did with Ouija boards, it is quite settled. But that's not what we did. Mm. <laughs> yeah, Ouija boards. I would be keen. But imagine if you did unlock something. That'd be so, so annoying. Well, is that the thing? I, didn't, I don't know much about it, obviously, but if you can draw one, is that still as... Do you not have to buy a Hasbro one? Or something like that. <laughs> Does that not have to be somewhat authentic, or can you just draw one? If it's up? not branded, I'm not coming down. 
It has to be branded. Um, I don't know. You could just have the letters out, can't you? Yeah. Mm. Just carve them into the table. Yeah. We should vlog it. Yeah, we'll go around Ben's house, carve into his table. Yeah, <laughs> just, I do need to get a new desk, so this we can use the old one. Brilliant. Yeah. There you go, yeah. Mm. There you go, money. There's quite a famous German-American psychologist and also a parapsychologist called William G. Roll. Though some of his work has been mocked quite openly, not just because of his name, he is still held in pretty good regard amongst some parts of the scientific community. He claims that after studying many quote-unquote poltergeist events, more often than not, the person at the centre of the activity has symptoms of repressed anger and or distress. He claimed that many of the hauntings or poltergeist activity he studied was due to the discharge of mental energy he would infamously dub recurrent spontaneous psychokinesis, which um, I often just refer to as... Um, RSPK. RSPK. Suggested that the person was involuntarily employing RSPK in order to let out their repressed feelings. This theory would line up with the Hodgson children, specifically Janet, who was known for misbehaving, occasionally displaying a bad attitude and swearing regularly in the family home. One of the common criticisms of William G. Roll... Did actually go by Bill. Oh, Bill Roll. Bill Roll. Rolls of Bills. Fair enough. So it's Bill G. Roll. Billy G is that he was known to be incredibly short-sighted. Well, maybe that's not ideal for if you're looking for ghosts. <laughs> but claimed to have witnessed paranormal activity, one of his most infamous cases, Tina Roche, at the corner of his eye whilst he was hammering a nail into a wall with a wrench. So yeah, he seems, seems a very um, eccentric character, unless he just didn't see that it was a wrench. So yeah, but about uh, Billy Roll, Billy G. Roll, some sceptics argue that it takes a brave man to hammer in a nail and attend to very poor peripheral vision at the same time. And I just thought, that is, that's quite interesting. Is it? No yeah. fucking way. Oh, it's not back, is it? it. Oh. No! <laughs> we have still got the jingle, haven't we? We haven't binned it, have we? I think we binned it. Hit it. Ben Carter's interesting facts. Interesting facts. Are they? I don't know. Interesting facts. Welcome back. Welcome back. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a brief one. I'm going to sort of do it as and when. And this just felt right. It's, it's a mishmash of information here. Uh, mishmash it of always activity. Is, baby. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but, but very on brand for Poltergeist. They're a bit here, there and everywhere, aren't they? So I thought, yeah, I'll hit you with a few little ones. So did you know the word Poltergeist is derived from two German words, uh, which producer Dan hopefully will be able to help me on. Polten, which means to crash, rumble or bang about. And Geist, which means mind, ghost or spirit. So you've got crash mind, bang spirit or loud ghost. But the most literal translation, and yeah, Dan, if you can back me up or not, knocking spirit. I'm afraid I can't back you up, but I'll uh, check it out. Fantastic. Fantastic. No veneer <laughs> in here. <laughs> the earliest reports of poltergeist activity date all the way back to AD 530. And a study of over 500 cases of poltergeist activity carried out by leading parapsychologists Alan Galt and Tony Cornell found that poltergeist activity predominantly involved the movement of small objects to include lamps, toys, photo frames uh, in 64% of those cases. I wouldn't consider them small. Those I would like change. Toys. And, Depends how big the toy is. Well, that's true. Yeah, a little bit of change on the side. Um, change on the brain followed by rapping sounds and it's genuinely described as, as rapping I did think it was just a spelling One on thing, tapping I don't know why <laughs> it doesn't even matter how hard I try keep that Billy man rolls. <laughs> the movement of large objects such as tables beds and chairs in 36% of cases and most often than not targets or victims of the poltergeist activity tend to be teenage and young adult females with many sceptics believing the naughty little girl 
theory, uh, which was uh, yeah an interesting theory when you <laughs> when you read into it. I, it wasn't me that put it forward. It was naughty little girl. Yeah, <laughs> my my theory is you're a naughty little girl. <laughs> Stop moving my pennies and rapping on the door. Well, this was put forward by researcher Frank Podmore, um, who claimed that the cases that were often... less sometimes. Yeah, easy, Frank. Um, he claimed that the, the cases most often that were put forward uh, were put forward by teenage girls determined to cause mischief, and that at the centre of the disturbance was often a female child who was throwing objects around the house to fool or scare people for attention. I think Frank was bullied by his sisters. <laughs> There's a good chance, yeah, it's a good chance. I couldn't find specific stats about how many paranormal or poltergeist activities are reported each year in the UK, but using the Paranormal Database, which is a fun little tool, uh, the most reports or sightings by county, this is Tom's sort of go-to accent as well, have come from Yorkshire, uh, with 786 reports. Ooh. And the most reports or sightings by town, city or borough have come from Brighton, which that surprised me, with 146. Ooh. And then just a little fun one. Uh, there's a Pokemon called Pol Tea Geist, which is a, uh, a cheeky little ghost in a teapot, and its ability is Tea Break, and its attack is Mad Party. <laughs> Mad Party, can you imagine? So there you go, just a, a little bit of scattered information there about Poltergeist, uh, just to ease you back into the episode. Um, <laughs> take it away, boy. Well, thank you very much for that, Ben. Uh, I'm going to do a little shout-out. I, I did it on live stream we did the other day, but... The series Uncanny on BBC. I need to watch that. Yeah, yeah. you sold it's it. Got some spookiness on there, which made me go, made me actually look at myself and think, do I believe in this? Really? So it did a little bit, yeah, Ben. Could be on my weekend then. Yeah, but I'm not as sceptical as you. I, I feel like I've got a bit more wonder in the world, where you're a bit more like, no, left is left and right is right. And you're a naughty little girl in my theory. <laughs> <laughs> Podmore. <laughs> Prod more, more. Oh, careful. Like, prod less, please, prod less. Either way, the Hodgson daughters continued to play with their Ouija board whilst also struggling socially and academically. At home, they tended to get away with a fair bit of leniency under their mother's roof. As we mentioned, they were very much struggling financially. As well as this, the absence of a father figure in the home had clearly impacted on all four of the Hodgson children. It would be the following summer night of August 30th, 1977, that would change all of their lives forever. And it is here that we move on to the timeline of... The Anfield Haunted. <laughs> God, this house is chilly. You could pick a reverb. It makes it a bit more spooky than a fucking robot. <laughs> Exterminate. It's here that we move to the timeline of The, the Anfield Haunted. Very good. Thanks so much. Late evening of Tuesday, August 30th, 1977. After what had been a particularly long day of playing around the neighbourhood during the summer holidays, single mother Peggy Hodgson is keen to put her three children to bed. The Hodgson children, 13-year-old Margaret, 11-year-old Janet and 7-year-old Billy, had all gone upstairs to change into their pyjamas and get ready to go to sleep. 10-year-old Johnny at this point was away at boarding school. Suddenly, Janet began yelling downstairs to her mother that her brother Billy's bed had begun going all funny and was apparently rattling off its own accord as it very slowly moved across the floor. Billy began screaming whilst Margaret stood in shock. Mom! Peggy shouted upstairs to her children to stop mucking around and to stop fighting and to simply go to sleep. I think as well, as the kids would regularly sort of act... As they would regularly act out, it wasn't you know, abnormal for Peggy to just say, knock it off, go to bed, stop it. Because they would regularly do things like this. 
So she actually shouted out, stop it, go to bed, go to sleep, stop fighting. But the Hodgson children remained convinced that their shared bedroom was haunted and subsequently spent the rest of the night unable to sleep. Peggy later went to bed herself, turning off all the lights, thinking no more of it and sleeping soundly, not knowing that this night marked the first in what would become a period of more than 18 months of strange phenomena emerging from 284 Green Street. 9pm August 31st 1977. Late in the following evening, disturbances continued at the Hodgson family home in Enfield. This time they escalate and scare Peggy to the core. With the children already asleep in bed, Peggy claimed to hear the soft shuffling noises from above her, as if somebody was walking around in slippers. The shuffling noises proceeded to go downstairs before becoming louder and louder in front of her, with no person in sight. Peggy scoped the room anxiously. There was a pause for a brief moment before four loud knocks came from the back bedroom. Sounds like someone's fucking... Sounds like someone's wearing slippers. That's spooky. Startled, Peggy rushes towards the noise to find her children awake and also claiming to have heard it. All three of them were upright in the room with the light on and so Peggy believed them to have been falling around instead of going to sleep. She once again told them to stop messing around when her youngest daughter Janet sharply replied that the noise was coming from a chest of drawers next to the entrance of the room. Ooh, so this is a really small ghost, a little borrow ghost. Old teageist, little teapot ghost. Could have been him. The drawers then, according to everyone present in the room, suddenly move forward a couple of inches, scratching along the floor in the process. Peggy then approached the drawers and pushed them back against the wall, only to watch them move towards her once again. Peggy then went to push the drawers a second time, only to feel what she described as an invisible force resisting her pushes, leaving her unable to move the drawers to the wall. The knocking then continued, causing the Hodgson family to flee the home in the middle of the night. The Hodgins rushed to the next door neighbour's house with a frantically knock to the door of Vic and Peggy Nottingham. The pair answered and let the terrified family in, where they began to quickly relay their experiences. The Nottingham family had heard the knocks themselves, but assumed it was the children messing about. Vic was a roofer by trade, and so the decision was made for Vic to check the house and the bedroom for any kind of structural flaws that could account for the knocking, or for the furniture moving by itself. Vic recalled the following. We'd been sitting listening to the knocking and the woman next door, she called me in. We couldn't make out what it was. I heard the knocking as I walked in the front door and it followed me everywhere. I went all over the house and I checked it. Checked the walls, checked everything. Just couldn't make out what it was. So, in the end, I thought to myself, well, there's only one thing. I'll call the police. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. Yeah, I really like Vic in this case. Vic is the one part where it's like, well, if he believes it, because he's just mm. very... Um, I know it's only a little thing, but he he's he's looking at the interviewer as if the interviewer thinks he's talking shit, and he can sense that. But I, I like Vic in this case. Vic is my favourite. I feel like they're not as close to the neighbours as, as they think... The woman next door came over. I said, Vic, say a name, Vic. Neighbours. But yeah, no, it's it's interesting as well, like going, can, I wonder if Vic can say if there's anything structurally wrong with the house that would make the drawers slide against the wall. Like, oh, the floor's at a 45 degree angle. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> it's 
Yeah, I like the fact that they have checked it, like incentively going like, is it just pipes? Is it just this? But yeah, yeah, very peculiar. Yeah, well, as we'll go through, the the reason why there is so much argument around this case is because it's not just you know two or three people claiming to have seen something. It's thirty, and how can thirty people be lying? But we'll we'll go through that. So the call to the police was made shortly before midnight, with the police arriving at 1am the following morning. Initially sceptical of the call, the two arriving police officers analysed the scene whilst also taking statements from both of the Peggy's as well as Vic and the Hodgson children. They thought that perhaps somebody was playing a prank on the family, so they investigated all the rooms of the house as well as the outer walls, pipes and the attic. Nothing was found. After spending more than an hour at the family home, the two officers explained that there was nothing that they could do as no crime had been committed. However, as they made their way to exit the property, Constable Caroline Heaps observed something that she would not be able to shake from her mind for the rest of her life. There was, there was heaps, heaps of discrepancies. I remember talking to my mother. Constable Heaps noticed what appeared to be quite an ordinary chair next to the family sofa in the living room, and as she looked at it, the chair began to wobble before suddenly sliding over a metre towards the kitchen. Why is, Why that, is that chair, chair wobbling? wobbling? Hmm. I'm just hearing internal monologue. <laughs> there were four distinct taps on the wall. One hot, one cold. <laughs> <laughs> and one was custard. There were four distinct taps on the wall, and then silence. About two minutes later, I heard more tapping from a different wall, and then more silence. The PC and the neighbours all went to the kitchen to check the refrigerator pipes, but couldn't find anything to explain the knocking. The lights in the living room were switched off again, and with a few minutes, the sun pointed to a chair that was standing next to the sofa. I looked at the chair and noticed it was wobbling slightly from side to side. I then saw the chair slide across the floor towards the kitchen wall. It moved approximately three to four feet, and then came to a rest. So that's just over a metre in today's money. Mm. And apparently with the refrigerator, the light would turn off and on. Like they opened up, the light would flash on and then close it again, the light would just switch off and everyone's a bit, this is weird. This is spooky. So yeah, it's, it's uh, a lot of accounts here from people who, why would they lie? <laughs> I have to say, why is Heaps lying? And why is Vic lying? If they are lying. Mm. And the most common thing was, oh, well, it could be, you could have bad, I don't know if this is the technical term, but bad pipes. But yeah. the fact that the tapping was moving from different parts of the house, upstairs, downstairs, different rooms. A rat in the pipes? Yep. Yeah. Kill, kill me. Kill me. <laughs> so this is two families now and two police officers that are kind of believing something's not quite right here, which is, yeah, spooky. So the neighbour, Vic Nottingham, would confirm the officer's statement, basically saying that as soon as this occurred, the police wanted to get out of the house as soon as possible because they had become just as scared as everybody else was. The Nottinghams allowed the Hodgins to stay in their house for the night, returning to their home the following morning. Vic was called back around to the Hodgins at a similar time the following night, where he said that he received the same reaction, knocking, followed by silence, before he was eventually struck by a flying piece of Lego. Ooh. And I don't know why he says the first line so sort of <laughs> Texan. This here Lego. <laughs> this here Lego. I witnessed a box of Lego underneath a chair in the bedroom. I walked into the room, and as I walked into the room... He's <laughs> got <laughs> somewhere talking, this guy. <laughs> I walked into the room, and as I walked into the room, the Lego began to fly. But where it was coming from, I don't know. One piece hit me on the arm. It caught me on the elbow. Caught me on the elbow. It caught me on the elbow and brought a lump up. Always check your balls. 
Yeah, so yeah, Lego flying. Yeah. Must be a big bit of Lego to bring a lump up there. Yeah, or just a, well, really a little bit, but really hard thrown at, mm. thrown with force, thrown with venom, um, mm. which is kind of what Vic was saying. According to the Hodgsons and the Nottinghams, pieces of Lego as well as marbles would fly around different rooms of the house for the next three days, moving so fast that you almost couldn't see them. Is, that's I wonder quite if, it's handy. The, if, the, if it's the marbles that they've actually lost <laughs> by seeing all this stuff. <laughs> Potentially, we can't we can't rule that out at this stage. They also said as well these marbles and bits of Lego. When you pick them up, they were hot to the touch. So hot marbles, Ooh. hot Lego. The family invited different members of the community into the house in an effort to help, including members of the local council and clergy. But the paranormal activity only continued to escalate. The Hodgson daughters, Janet and Margaret, also made claims that they had been pushed and pulled whilst they tried to sleep. Which, yeah. Hmm. Mm. Wonder where this is going. Dan, what's your thoughts so far? Just naughty little girls doing a hoax? Or something spooky going on in Enfield? Yeah, a lot of it can be explained by just someone doing some weird things so far. And the movement of sounds... You know, mm. sound can be very clever. Um, so it doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, a sound is moving across the house. It just, depending where you're standing, it can be... Well, tell me about the hot marbles then, Brainiac. Lighter. Yeah, but then they'll be dusty. Good point. Carbon. Yeah, carbon's always... That always gets you. You always I'll, get done by carbon. I think about that one, yeah. Yeah, please do. Like, those hot marbles pressing into your back. Really cold hands so that anything kind of feels warm. Um, echoes with the sounds as well, because sound is smart. Don't just nick Dan's phrase. Dan's got his own merch that says sound is smart on it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm buying one. Okay, thank you. September 4th, 1977. After several days of unexplainable events at the Hodgson home, Vic's wife, Peggy Nottingham, makes the decision to call the Daily Mirror in the hope they'll be able to share their story and perhaps get in touch with someone capable of helping. Is that the way? I mean, back in the day, I understand you haven't got the internet, you can't just log on and, and search for ghost, ghostly people or ghost finders or hunters but going through the newspaper is that maybe it is the best way but seems a little bit like let's get some publicity yeah yeah well that yeah you put yourself at risk of being made the fool of don't you doing something like that and please put in the story about the hot marbles and Vic in the background oh and sound smart sound the newspaper sent reporter Douglas Bentz as well as photographer Graham Morris to the property this would become the first of numerous house visits from Graham wherein they'd spend several hours alone whilst the Hodgins stayed at, at their neighbours. Mr Morris and Mr Bent spent almost the entire night alone in the house, not hearing or encountering a single thing out of the ordinary. The pair even suggested to one another that Peggy was telling these stories in order to get an upgraded council house. Ooh, a bit of a motive. Mm. Would the, we think the council go, yeah, it is haunted, fair play, we're going to get you somewhere else. We've seen the Lego. I mean, even the pipes being faulty, or you, you'd go with something a bit more mainstream, mainstream issue with the house, wouldn't you? Rather mm. than... Uh, it being haunted. So yeah, it's a bit of a, an iffy motive for me. The duo went next door to tell the Hodgins essentially that the coast was clear and that they could return to the house. And as they re-entered the property, one by one, everything seemed fine. The last person to enter the house along with the reporters was Janet. And when she did so, things took an exceptional turn. Gray Morris said the following in an interview with the BBC. I thought it was an ordinary job until I walked back into the house. I stood in the gloom in the kitchen and one by one they brought the children into the adults' arms. And the last one to come in was Janet. Suddenly things just took off and started flying around the room. I got hit by a Lego brick over my right eye. It gave me a lump for days. <laughs> for days. <laughs> for days. <laughs> it gave me a lump for a few days. There was a fair bit of force. 
There were marbles and things left in the kitchen that were just flying around the room. I was watching all of the family and none of them was doing anything. Maybe if things are flying around, let's get some soft toys in here. Let's get some teddies. Let's get some beanie babies. Let's not have bricks and marbles. Or Meccano. That would be terrifying. Yet this event made the national news and soon people from all over the country would flock to 284 Green Street in the hope of witnessing something otherworldly. Opinions would vary massively on what was going on, with many people believing the Hodgson family to be doing this for attention, money, or even a housing upgrade. This caused Peggy and her children to feel alienated from the rest of society, and unable to come to a conclusion on what to do to resolve the horrific experiences. Monday the 5th of September 1977, and this part here, I, I, I believe that the two initial uh, Daily Mirror employees that they sent over were doubted when they came back because the Daily Mirror now send a senior reporter as well as a separate photographer uh, in the coming days as a follow-up, and his name was George Fallows. And he was a little more cynical in his analysis of the situation, though he would eventually suggest that the Hodgson's contact the Society for Psychical Research. Because of the emotional atmosphere at the house and in the neighbourhood, ranging from hysteria through to terror to excitement and tension, it has been difficult to record satisfactory data. Nevertheless, I am satisfied by the overall impression of our investigation is reasonably accurate. To the best of our ability, we have eliminated the possibility of total trickery, although we have been able to simulate most of the phenomena. In my opinion, this faking could only be done by an expert. Mm. Mm. Shortly after this visit, Peggy Hodgson contacted the Society for Psychical Research, where she was put in touch with one of its relatively new members, the very eager and the very passionate Mr. Morris Gross. And a note on Morris, who is a fascinating character in this case. He was a former soldier, having served and experienced a great deal of trauma in World War II. He was also an inventor, having many different patents, but most notably, he invented the rotating advertising billboard. Uh, so, go on, Morris. There was uh, a lot of questions around Morris and his motivations for this case. He had experienced the loss of his daughter, also named Janet, in a, a freak motorbike accident just a year before he became involved with the Enfield haunting. And it's her death and the impact this had on the family that led him to register with the Society for Psychical Research. See, that's why if I was to buy a motorbike, I'd never buy a freak motorbike. I'd just buy a normal one. Because you always hear about these accidents that happen on those. On the freaks. On the freak motorbikes, yeah, just get a normal one. Yeah. Uh, advice to live by hopefully yeah um but morris yeah interesting guy and apparently yeah he would say i mean i watched the uh, dramatization of this case last night and he would say that uh, shortly after uh, janet passed away there would be different signs um uh, that they felt she was trying to communicate uh with with, with him and his wife he said uh, on a very hot summer uh, in the middle of august it was it was going through a drought and then suddenly one day they woke up and the flat roof in front of janet's previous bedroom window had become soaking wet but everything else was dry and that was him saying oh my daughter's trying to communicate with us and i get that people look for comfort in different ways but this is apparently there were signs like that that made him want to uh yeah, get involved in uh, psychical research. On Morris's first visit to the house, he claimed that all he found within it was chaos and a lot of very frightened individuals. He advised Peggy to try and remain calm for her children and to start keeping a diary of events in order to log the different incidents that occurred on different dates. 
perhaps to try and see if there were any kind of trends. Morris as well as other members of the press would wait on standby in Enfield, but nothing would happen for the next three days. And also I've seen that, I've, I've read that they, because they had a three bedrooms upstairs, the mum and the son would stay in one room, the two girls in another room, and they'd actually let, occasionally let Morris and other journalists and investigators stay in the third bedroom. So they were literally there on call for any kind of bizarre happenings. Which, yeah, it's, it's quite quite interesting. At 1.15am Thursday, the 8th of September 1977, during the early hours of the morning, a loud crash could be heard coming from the children's shared bedroom. Morris and the other members of the press rushed to the room, but found the children fast asleep, with a bedside chair appearing to have been flipped over on its side and moved more than a metre. With that, uh, that one is kind of like, it'd be very easy for someone to get out of bed, lug a chair on the floor, go back to bed and pretend to be asleep. And I'd also question if it was so loud, the noise, why didn't the girls wake up? Morris was convinced that this case was legitimate and therefore required further investigation, so he began setting up audio equipment in the house and staying with the family for extended periods of time. Rent free? Who knows? This event also resulted in the Enfield case becoming the front page news of the Daily Mirror, titled The House of Strange Happenings. Peggy and her children together with Morris would make numerous television and radio appearances from this moment onwards. So yeah, I mean, I'm sure people would speculate whether or not he was in on it as well a little bit. I get the idea of you trying to get it meter out there in case there is anyone out there who can help you with the case but it mm-hmm. does some get to a point where it's like how many people can be in on it the other thing with Morris as well is he identified that obviously Janet was at the centre of this case Janet it was also the name of his daughter mm-hmm. similar age I think he wanted to well he viewed it as a chance to try and communicate with his own daughter yeah. but then there were also stories that uh, the Hodgson daughters would be actually quite rude and berate Morris who was just a really unaware individual. So they they would be nasty to him, swear to him, call him names. And also, he caught Janet bending spoons in another room. He caught Janet hitting the ceiling with a with a broom. Mm. So, <laughs> but then he he also shared that information whilst also trying to say that, no, this is not normal, this house. So, yeah, he's he's, he's quite... It's kind of sad because, it's, yeah, it's, it's a layer of sadness over it because you can understand that with this kind of thing, people take advantage of people exactly like Morris in terms of saying you know you can contact your, your deceased daughter and you can you can speak to her and he's obviously seen something or even have, have that thin glimmer of hope even if he wouldn't say it that this might be the way to speak to her and he wants to believe it which is often the case of this kind of case isn't it it's the the faith people have because they want to believe that they can make contact they want to believe they're still there they want to believe that you know it isn't so it's, it's sad more than I think Morris I don't think he's trying to hoodwink I think it's more a case of he's just a sad man trying to speak to his daughter still which is so yeah it's just sad over the coming days more big name journalists and members of the society for the psychical research arrived at the property including Rosalind Morris of BBC Radio who stayed for half a night in the property and claimed to have seen a chair move and a bed shake go on Rosalind as well as author and paranormal researcher Guy Leon Playfair <laughs> these names who claimed to hear knocks see marbles move and feel a presence within the house whilst making Rosalind's bed rock Guy would end up assisting Morris on 180 visits to the house, including 25 overnight stays. The Hodgson family, meanwhile, would stay with Peggy's brother, John, who lived on the same street for the next few days. During the stay, apparently, John's wife, Sylvia, saw the face of a child's toy fall off while she was making cups of tea. When she turned around, Janet was looking at her. Let's dissect, let's dissect that a little bit. She's making a cup of tea, and she saw the face of a child's toy fall off. I'm baffled by that. Turned around and Janet was looking, having a good look at her. Unless she was boiling the kettle right, you know, with the toy sat by the spout. 
yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah like, like opening an envelope in, in a spy way. The face just peeled off. Yeah, that's that's peculiar. But then is Sylvia in on it? Mm. Sylvia now getting involved, wanting to do a couple of, you know, a press tour? Yeah, I mean, the family, you'd imagine if anyone was in on it, it'd be the family, but... Mm. The following month, on October 22nd, Rosalind Morris spent her second night at the property, this time taking several audio recording devices with her. The equipment would pick up lots of different knocks throughout the night, including 30 rapping sounds within the space of a quarter of an hour. We'll play some of these for you now. Oh, wow, there's raps. It's like fire in the booth. I, I was convinced at one point there was a, a football sort of... Enfield. Enfield, yeah. Going to get you. They do sound a bit weird, but they sound very staged to me, Dan. Dan's listening to them now. For me, they're very staged sounding. They just sound like... Yeah, I can do that. <laughs> See? <laughs> A week after this incident, the Hodgson family began to plead with the local council to rehouse them, which could actually make people's theory be true, as each of them were getting little to no sleep in the property. The council would not oblige, however they did pay for the family to go on a week-long break to Clacton on Sea. A council offering you holidays is... I was surprised by that. Yeah, that's unique. Where they were joined by their brother Johnny. Why is Johnny going? Uh, who was back from... Oh, sorry, he's... <laughs> sorry, right. sorry, Johnny. <laughs> <laughs> So he's back from boarding school and he's like, what are you guys been up to then? Come on, John. <laughs> Let's go to Clacton on Sea on the council. No reported paranormal experiences in Clacton. So it's just mm. Clacton on Sea was just smooth sailing. The way that I, I got a bit immersed in the world of um, clairvoyance and, and Reddit posters. A haunting is the object or the building. A poltergeist is the person at the centre of it. So technically this poltergeist should have been on its way to Clacton if Janet was there. Mm but apparently it didn't fancy Clacton. Some people have quite, you know, negative opinions about beachy towns. Maybe it's just like, I can't be arsed with that. <laughs> yeah. Mm. Yeah, that's fair. November 5th, 1977, obviously bonfire night. This marked one of the most contested nights of the Enfield haunting case. With it obviously being bonfire night, there were already a great deal of external pops and bangs going on outside the house. However, within it, Morris attempted to communicate with what he believed to be a poltergeist. This is where the knock once for no, twice for yes moment uh, came in, which again, we will play for you now. Knock. Well, thank you very much. That was a very good answer. Was it more than 50 years ago? 
Yeah. What do you think, Dan? I'm probably the most cynical I've ever been right now. Yeah. Yeah. To be honest with you. Morris gets a box to the fucking bonds. <laughs> Tom, you're in the biz. The way they have the camera mm-hmm. set up there, surely that's... The box that gets thrown at him is like focal point and they can't see the hands beneath it yeah, just go... I mean, yeah, it's, such a, it's, it's not well-placed. That's the place you'd throw the box if you wanted to make it look at all sketchy. Yeah, but it, it's it's uh, it's just comical, isn't it, at that stage? You feel, but you do feel it's just the girls just taking the piss out of Morris. I'm just Obviously, he's immersed in this field now, but he, he's got a very casual um, mm. reaction to getting a, a ghost frog box, 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 box A week later, at 5am in the morning of November 12, Janet was forcibly tipped out of her bed, along with her mattress which landed on top of her, head first while she slept. As the Hodgson children began screaming, Peggy allegedly rushed to the bedroom and tried out a communicative technique that Morris and Guy had suggested to her. This Guy as well, because we've not really even given Guy uh, a bit of a shout out. So Guy, uh, Lion Playfair, was basically like the top level guy at the Psychical uh, Research Society, whereas Morris was very much entry level and he was very well respected. Guy Lyon is a bit more harder to dupe uh, than Morris. And yeah, he had suggested basically place a series of pens and paper all over the house and then shout out, Spirit, leave me a message. And apparently Peggy did this after five minutes, she went downstairs where she found the following terrifying note left on her fridge, which I assume was placed there by Magnet. Oh, say ass. Do not read this to anyone. I will tell After this incident, two weeks went by with very little to report on. Janet and Margaret had both been given Valium to help with their anxiety and their sleep. Family members and neighbours would visit the house to support Peggy and her children, including their uncle John. On the night of November 26th, John paid a visit to check on Peggy whilst her children slept. After reassuring her, he then told Peggy that he would go upstairs to check on the girls. John opened the girls' bedroom door to find Janet was somehow asleep on top of a large radio, which was on top of a chest of drawers. It looks very uncomfortable. Even I like cracking my back, I like laying on flat surfaces. That doesn't look comfortable. It's a big radio. Very, It's like the, the cab of a guitar amp, uh, guys. Is oh, you little rock star. Look at this guy. Wow, Playing man. Rock and roll, yeah, brother. That's yeah. the riff. You do look like... Um, oh, what's that band? Girl the Bad Guys Want? Um, Fucking <laughs> <laughs> Jurette Roddick, or whatever his name is. Oh, now yeah. Now as well, not then. Yeah. Fucking hell. Uh, when he's watching wrestling. Yeah. That's a cream But she pie. is apparently... <laughs> oh... Yeah, apparently, so it's sort of a, an N, a lowercase N shape over the radio in the cabinet. doesn't look comfortable. What made this sight even more disturbing to John was that Janet had received a large dose of Valium and therefore would not have been able to get there by herself. Because so I was thinking then, obviously, with, with things not happening as much during that period with them being sedated, essentially, obviously leans toward the idea of the girls were just fucking playing tricks the whole time. Yeah. But that thing he said there, surely you've taken the value. It's not going to immediately, I've never taken Valium, so I can't actually say, but it's not going to immediately affect you, is it? It's going to be like slowly fall into it. So I would have thought you'd be able to crawl up in there after you pop one in. Yeah, I think Janet had been given 10 milligrams, so quite a high dosage. But yeah, I agree. I mean, she would still have surely had a a short window to be able to do it and think oh this would be actually if anything the value might aid the Mm, uncomfortableness of that the discomfort of climbing on top of that so yeah but yeah interesting over the next few days paranormal incidents seem to become more focused and far more violent towards janet 
She was regularly found asleep in different parts of the house, often under her own bed or the beds of her siblings, having been pulled from her bed. She was also found on different furniture. She'd also allegedly been thrown into walls as well as being dragged across the floor by this invisible entity. And Morris claims to have witnessed Janet being thrown more than four meters by the spirit. Throughout the rest of 1977, different mediums visited the property, including a leading Brazilian psychic and spiritual artist, Luiz Gasparetto. He would spend a lot of time with Janet and basically the pair would go on to create a series of nine drawings together. And the way that Luiz would do this is he would uh, close his eyes and apparently get himself into a, quote, trance-like state whilst Janet was speaking to him and perhaps speaking to him through the poltergeist and as he would do that he would draw she would draw and together the pair created these nine drawings which alleged to have been incredibly disturbing containing scenes of death knives and blood so this part is particularly spooky could be a really really niche coincidence so on one of these drawings she would write the name watson over and over again and it turned out that a family called Watson had lived in the house and the wife had died of a tumour in her throat in a similar way to one of the bloody pictures that Janet had drawn. That was not known immediately when they reviewed the pictures, but once, um, once it was passed on to different investigators, they were like, well, the Watson family lived here, the wife died this way, and yeah, that's kind of spooky. I tried my best to try and find these drawings, but I couldn't, I couldn't find them anywhere. I'd love to see them. Yes, I was going to say about that, I mean, you, you know, you get given like a... I know a relative's kid's picture or you know someone you know just a kid's drawing like a friend's kid and you're like what the fuck is that mm. oh that's that oh that's that is it oh is it why am i bigger than a house mm. you can kind of oh that could mean that that red bit there could be that it's like mm. you know it's quite easy to place that into manipulate that into what you would want it to be essentially the watson thing's different because if it's just written clearly then yeah that is yeah, so this is this part we're about to go into now is the thing that really drew me to this case. Is the is kind of the creepy thing that's stuck in the back of my head. Which this is a bit I really want to dissect with you, Dan, especially in terms of what's capable uh, of this, because you have heard different ex experts talking about this and having different opinions and stuff. So it'd be interesting to see what you what you reckon on this as well. But yes, Saturday the tenth of December uh, through to Thursday the fifteenth of December, nineteen seventy seven. This week marks the most infamous and volatile of the reported poltergeist activity in the Enfield case. Whilst a group of researchers were present in the house, together with Janet, Margaret, and Peggy, Morris challenges the spirit to physically speak. At first, he hears what sounds like a dog's barking, as well as a series of taps and whistles until eventually he hears what appears to be the gruff, low-pitched voice of an elderly man. But this voice was coming from Janet. This bizarre back and forth would go on sporadically over the following three days, initially introducing itself as Joe Watson, before eventually introducing itself as William or Bill Wilkins. Morris and his own son would have the following conversation with Bill, and we'll play that to you now. I want you to tell me whether you remember what happened to you when you died? Just before you died and just after you died? Days before I died, I died. I went blind. Then I had a language and I fell asleep and I died in a chair in the corner downstairs. So, what you're saying is we could get rid of you by praying to God. Yes. Uh, uh. 
Dan, this is the bit that for me is a bit, it's weird. Producer Dan's just listened to the audio, um, and we've obviously played that for you as well. Uh, so this is coming from Janet, who is 11 years old. Initial thoughts, Dan, just hearing it, do you think that's an easy enough voice to do if you're doing a voice? Maybe at a certain age, but not at age 11. Yes. The other argument, Dan, is that she was able to do it for quite extended periods of time, not just, you know, a couple of lines. Because even if we try and do a voice lower than what we're capable of doing, like, it's hard to maintain. Apparently she's able to maintain it for a long period of time without, you know, ruin or wrecking the voice in any way, shape or form. Do you want me to add an extra spooky layer down before you give your Please. opinion? So there was a man named William Charles Lewis Bill Wilkins. He was born on the 23rd of November 1901 and he died on the 20th of June 1963. And he died in Enfield, a number 284 Green Street. However, he died of coronary thrombosis. He didn't go blind and then die of an hemorrhage. The name lines up, the location lines up, but the cause of death doesn't line up. And again, maybe the girls knew about the history of the home. I don't know if they would, though, because I think, like, if you buy a house from a family, then you probably would maybe have a little bit more inkling. But if it's a if council house and people lived there before, obviously you could talk to neighbours. That's probably about it. But I don't imagine the girls talking mm-hmm. to neighbours or the mum talking to them and telling you, oh, yeah, a man died in this house. Why, why would a mum do that? It, feel, it feels odd. Then saying that, he died in the house 14 years before these incidents take place. So so maybe it was known in the area. Maybe some of the neighbours, older children, maybe not older children, adults even said, do you know, that's where Bill lived, he died. Yeah, maybe, yeah, can you imagine maybe the kids at school would know about the man that died in the house, but... Uh. Or it even takes one, you know, the uncle just to be laughing and joking, saying, oh yeah, a man named Bill died in your house, and then that's it, that's... you. What a fucking dickhead uncle. I know, I know, but... <laughs> You know, it's not out of the possibility. Um, but yeah, Dan, what are your thoughts? Because I'm intrigued now. Well, I know I said it kind of it's age dependent in terms of doing that voice, but it's not unheard of that a, a, you know a kid or a child can manipulate their voice to an extraordinary mm. kind of uh, pitch. Chocolate rain. I'm, I'm weirdly thought. Have you yeah. ever watched Outnumbered, that BBC series? Mm. The little kid Ben. There's a. I think it's like series two when he's about probably 11 or 12 and he manages to do that voice as a scene I think I think he says black because it's the color of death um uh, so it's not kind of but that is yeah she's doing it for a long amount of time that is yeah I think manipulate going higher but it's the lower the gravel of it yeah it's um you just did a very good impression Dan did that cause much strain to do black it does actually cause quite a bit of strain, yeah. But I'm not very good with my range. Some people are very, very good and can tr- control it very well. I was lying down in bed and I felt people. Maybe I could be eleven year old girl from Enfield. That's a twist. Could be. I would make my wife a paedophile. Uh, these eerie encounters resulted in additional equipment <laughs> being placed in the girl's bedroom, including extra audio devices. <laughs> That has to stay in. and automatic cameras. There's definitely some words in this case that feel like the people are just making it up. Magnetometer is definitely one that just feels... <laughs> oh, we better bring the magnetometer. I remember being on shoots um, just using very, like, uh, literal language for equipment to make them sound more fancy with lights and camera. We have to get that. And this is... Let's try and make it sound a bit more... <laughs> Someone's saying that in front of the people. Oh, yeah, we'll get the uh, magnetometers and the automatic cameras. <laughs> but all of these devices um, were called to action when, during the morning of December 15th, Janet was encouraged to levitate by researcher David Robertson. 
Though David himself wasn't allowed in the room, the camera picked up several photos of Janet seemingly levitating, who does look a lot like she's just jumping across the bedroom, with her siblings looking on in horror. But I mean, <laughs> with this fight, it's, it's quite a striking photo because of the, the look of horror, but even with the way the legs are positioned, it does just like jumping on a bit off the bed. But this is a photo that became infamous with this case. It's ones that um, stood out. For me, that wasn't the shocking one. It was more of the uh, the voice that really kind Bill, of yeah. yeah. But the the only thing that kind of lent into this being was apparently the time between her jumping up and being in bed is like ridiculous, and the camera catching the two this doesn't seem to appear to show her jumping. Yeah, it's a little bit sketchy that bit. And obviously, David not allowed in the room. It's very easy to say. Well, that's why. But <clears throat> yeah, I agree. They are quite striking. They are odd to look at but to me it looks like she's jumping from bed to bed is this you inspecting your books it's definitely in now isn't it deary me <laughs> they're all quite odd to look at and as well as this items were thrown all over the room and a red pillar was even found to have somehow got on the roof of the house i mean can i just um throw back to that uh, uh photos of janet seemingly levitating <laughs> It does not look in the slightest like she's levitating. <laughs> she's literally just jumping off the bed. Yeah. And the camera's yeah. flashed off. Sorry to poo-poo on that, but... No, I think your poo is welcome there, Dan, to be honest. Smear it all over if you want. Thank you. First mm. coming up, actually. Some smoo. Some smoo? You, what, you, should, you <laughs> have encountered it so much that you have an abbreviation for it. Oh, there's smoo everywhere. <laughs> Though David wasn't allowed in the room to witness these events, which I think is probably because it's inappropriate as well, a lollipop lady outside the house, Hazel Short, claims that she noticed the red pillow on the roof of the house. And as she was trying to make out what it was, a book suddenly slammed against the window below it. It's just like too random. It's like a lollipop lady, which is fine. She sees a red pillow in the house, again, fine. But it's just like any kid could lug a pillow on the roof. Oh, that's definitely haunted then. And then, oh, someone put a book against the windows. This all ties in. Hazel stared at the window for a while longer, when to her horror, she claims that she saw Janet levitating on her back, staring towards her. And then a tradesman, again with a fucking made-up name, John Rainbow, <laughs> backed up this account, and so did uh, Philip Leprechaun, and Hazel recalled the following to the police and local press. That's how we're just shitting on the same thing. <laughs> but I mean, it's these names. Hazel shorts, short-sighted. Anyone that's got here so far and believes that the girls are telling the truth as well, we do apologise to you. You're, we respect your opinion. Well, no, it's, I, I, there's some parts of this case which I truly am like. That's interesting. That I don't know how that works, but a pillow being on top of the roof, and I do think you know if you think that's a bit of a haunted house and you see like something in the window, you can your brain brain can play tricks. But yeah, I don't know. Especially when you're in that situation, you kind of link your brain to mm. certain things to make it seem like yeah. it's legit or it's in that world so when I looked up a candy striped pillow hit the window as well that came after the books and I was I don't know if I was frightened or not just fascinated then after a little while I saw Janet she was levitating she was going up and down as though someone was just tossing her (laughs) (laughs) she was going up and down as though someone was just tossing her up and down bodily in a horizontal position as if someone had got hold of her legs and back and was throwing her up and down. Yeah, so Hazel Short, not um, not really one for interviews, but um, <laughs> again, that could easily be 
you know, like even that whole like pretending to walk down the stairs behind the sofa. If you can't see the whole thing, whole body and see what's going on, uh, lots of things can be implied from the window. As we said, this this case has certain elements like Ben mentioned earlier on about uh, Morris finding the girls hitting the roof with a broom and all, all the other bits and pieces, bending spoons and all this crap. And it's like that in itself is enough to me go, okay, with the girls, why, the, why would the girls lean into this? If it was something so terrifying was happening in the house, why are the girls leaning into it and, and adding to it and adding to the drama? But that's the voice thing, which still makes me think that's just a weird thing. As Christmas of 1977 approached, two of the family's pet goldfish were found dead, and so too was their pet budgie. Morris claims that despite filling Janet's mouth with water and taping it shut, she perfectly heard Bill say the words, I done that, before adding that he had electrocuted the goldfish with spirit energy, which sounds like a religious energy drink. The water and tape seemed to have zero impact on the voice, and on Christmas Day, Janet was sat in a chair in the living room when one of the window curtains wrapped itself around her neck. This was the first in a series of almost a dozen times that this occurred. Let's, let's again, let's dissect that a little, that little bit. So yeah, three of the animals have died, which is very, very sad. And then yeah, taping the mouth of them, Bill still speaking. Is, is there video footage of that, Ben? That would have reeled me in a bit more if there was, but uh, yeah, no footage of that. Is it beyond the possibility that the girls have got this lie this far that now they feel they have to kill animals to make it continue to be believable? Or is it just a nice, happy coincidence for them that this has happened? I was quite excited for a case where no death would happen and now I'm just good. But yeah, electrocuting the fish with spirit energy is interesting. Um, then I thought I'd hold up in court. <laughs> yeah, and then I'm sitting on a chair in the living room, one of the window curtains wrapped itself around the neck. The sad part of this case is, is Morris and I think the reason why he's involved and wanting to believe in this. But then it's like, if he's why is he lying about this stuff? Yeah, that would have been... Yeah, I mean, the whole uh, water in the mouth and tape over to then hear the voice of Bill, that would be enough for me to think, okay, something's really strange here, but there's no yeah. clear evidence of that. And um, it's just his word, which I'm not sure I believe. So January 15th and January 16th, 1978, this is where we arrive at SMU, uh, finally. Did I say SMU? You did say SMU, yeah. You said something about... When you wipe shit around your bathrooms, you call it smooth. Okay. Well, two consecutive days marked two incredibly strange incidents in the Hodgson house. Firstly, it was Peggy's birthday on the, the 15th of January. So happy birthday, Peggy. Thank you. You're Oh. When it got to the evening, Margaret went to use the bathroom before bed when she found the word shit, uh, block capitals, smeared across the bathroom wall. Yeah. With shit or in shit. So that's your smooth. Mm. whilst Peggy claims that after she had cleaned the bathroom up she noticed the bottom half of a man's body walking up the stairs when she tried to follow it it simply disappeared why is she trying to follow it I know the dad left a while ago but mm. that's you have better standards than that Peggy's shit on the walls saying <laughs> the word shit Bill would have scared me more if it was Bill and shit I don't know is that spirit energy again hmm <laughs> Yeah. I was going to say you check the handwriting, but maybe mm. smoothing is different, Ben. Different technique, isn't it? I think, yeah, your handwriting changes when you do block capitals anyway, doesn't it? Shit's quite a, quite a delicate material to write with, I guess, Ben. Like, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> to be fair, you'd want it a little bit runny, wouldn't you? Would you? Yeah, so you've got more more to work with. More to work with. and mm. You don't want it dry, do you? you Crumbly. Like, oh, yeah. Well, I'm, I'm thinking like a brown crown. 
So yeah, it's all go it's all going on in the house. Obviously, Margaret's claiming to see things. Well, she literally did see the word shit smeared in shit. The mother, Peggy, is claiming to see things now. It's not just kind of honing in on uh, Janet. Yeah, the, the bottom half of a man yeah. walking up the stairs. <laughs> Shitty ass. <laughs> I was just say like, if it's just the bottom half of someone, how can you tell it's a man? Mm. Unless it's naked or. <laughs> And she's like, why, as I said, why are you following it? Well, the following day, uh, January 16th, the bathroom was once again the scene of an anonymous word attack. This time, it was much more hygienically placed on the back of the bathroom door with insulation tape. And instead of the word shit, it read, in block capitals again, I am Fred. Now, there are photographs of this. Uh, there aren't any photos of the shit one, but I am Fred. You can, uh, you can image it away. Morris investigated it and deemed that, as it was made up of more than 20 individual pieces of tape and the girls were under watch, it would have taken them too long during a bathroom break to stage it. Morris is convinced that that was the, uh, yeah. the entity. Maybe they just do one bit at a time, though. Cover it up with a uh, uh, dressing gown. Yeah, or just a, a, a poster of Marilyn Monroe, like a... And Dufresne. Andy Dufresne. And slowly do it every time. Yeah. Go, oh, Curry last night, go to the toilet again. And it's also very, I mean, it's block capitals, but it's still quite neatly, like it's all lines up. It's not, it's not very abstract looking that you might expect. When the paranormal investigators reviewed Peggy's diary, they were shocked to find that she had logged 155 incidents in less than five months, which also suggested that apparitions of human forms were becoming more and more frequent, as well as more and more violent. As 1978 progressed, the Enfield Committee was formed, and this was made up from lots of people from the psychical uh, community, researchers, journalists, and famed American paranormal researchers Ed and Lorraine Warren even visited the property on three separate occasions, with Ed stating on record, and this is a big claim, the Enfield case makes Amityville look like a playhouse. I mean, people died in Amityville. That's what I say, Amityville... And the vibrator as well, of course, like we mentioned earlier. <laughs> so yeah, that's the film. So the, the for people who are into the horror films, The Conjuring, based around that couple, um, Ed and Lorraine Warren. Conjuring Two is all about well their visit to there as well. So yeah, it's, it's obviously it became it became well known all around the world. This case, but yeah, I, I think that's a bit of a bold claim considering people died in the Amityville. So as well as this quite bold claim from Ed, Margaret also began to speak in a similar gruff voice to the way that Bill was appearing through Janet. But apparently it was not in such an intense manner, so she wasn't able to maybe do it as well as Janet could. She was also observed frequently being pulled from her bed and thrown around the house by an unknown force. Again, I, I've not found any video footage of this. After the first visit from the Warrens, it was also advised that Janet needed some time away from the family home, and so she was sent to live in a home run by nuns for the summer. She also then spent two months in a psychiatric hospital. During all of this time, no paranormal incidents occurred because, as Janet put it, the power can't build up because there's no one else to help build it up. Which I think is quite an interesting uh, statement from Janet. Is she referring to Margaret? Is she referring to the spirit? This is very peculiar. Yeah. Janet returned home in September of 1978 after being discharged from hospital. And on her first day back at the family home, she claimed to have seen a little boy in the kitchen. This was followed up the following year in 1979 by another visit from Ed and Lorraine Warren, who claimed to have witnessed the spontaneous removal of wallpaper and rocks appearing from nowhere, also in the kitchen. 
but after this, poltergeist activity gradually died down after the house was blessed. The children eventually moved out of the family home after fully recovering from their ordeal, with Peggy remaining in the property on her own. And since then, there've uh, yeah, there've been no real uh, incidents to report on. Peggy would live in the house for a good number of years before sadly passing away. And then later in life, Janet would make quite a bit of money from uh, media appearances. It was not really proved either way, um, in terms of well, it hasn't been proved either way. I mean, a lot of people have obviously have their theories about the case. I think going for a bit more in depth, like we have, it does really feel like it's leaning into Kurt. The girls just you know, playing tricks, but then they did hoodwink a lot of people. That's the only thing I'd say for, for, yeah, uh, yeah expert. I mean, the thing is, as, as I said, had a, some experts want things to be real to prove what they're, you know, interested in and whatnot. This is, oh, this is evidence. We want evidence. Therefore, they're very eager to believe anything like that. But yeah, it does feel a bit too all over the shop, really. I think uh, a big moment for a lot of people was the fact that police uh, officers were claiming to have witnessed odd um, occurrings. But yeah, for me, obviously, if we didn't give it away throughout the timeline, yeah, I think it's the girls' kind of snowball effect. They've created this hysteria and they're trying to find new things to, to make a headline or to fool people. And obviously when they went to Clacton, nothing happened. When Janet was taken away to home by nuns or in secure hospital, nothing happened. The voice, the voice mm. element is fascinating, but it was good to get Dan's insight into that. But uh, yeah, very interesting all the same. Um, it's uh, kind of a yeah different a different kind of episode for us. I had a discussion with um, Katty before about um, witches and stuff like that around around local areas and whatnot. And there was one um, that's infamous around the Cambridge area, Ooh. known as Daddy Witch. Oh, is that what you were doing earlier? Daddy. No, 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 that was just, that was your, your dad giving me some good advice. But yeah, there's a, there was a woman called Daddy Witch, and they lived in the witch town of Horseheath, apparently in a cottage patch, ground almost encircled with water. The moat was called Daddy Witch Pond by locals. I do recommend if, if I think, because witches were a thing anyway, even if you don't believe what they did or whatever, but yeah, it's very interesting when you start searching into local areas. At Whittlesford, that's not too far from you, Ben. Gog Magog Hills um, was a pilgrimage uh, site for East Anglian witches. Oh... Yeah, so there's a lot of witch activity near you, Ben. Makes sense. So be careful. Yeah, Daddy Witch, I just thought this is a funny juxtaposition of words. It's a bit of aftermath. Um, after Peggy Hodgson sadly died, a lady called Claire Bennett and her four sons moved into the house. In an interview with the Daily Mail, she said, I didn't see anything, but I, but I felt uncomfortable. There was definitely some kind of presence in the house. I always felt like someone was looking at me. And apparently her sons would wake up in the middle of the night claiming to hear people talking downstairs. Claire then found out about the house's history just a month after moving in. They moved out of the property after just two months, and one of her sons, Shaka, who was 15 at the time, said, The night before we moved out, I woke up and saw a man come into the room. I ran into Mum's room and said, We've got to move, and we did that the next day. The house is currently occupied by another family who did not wish to be identified. The unnamed mother said the following when asked about it, I've got children. They don't know about it. I don't want to scare them. So that's interesting, because I would just assume they know about the house, and then they start seeing things. But then, if they didn't know anything about it, and they witnessed some creepy ongoing things, then that's slightly interesting, wouldn't it? In within itself, yeah. So Shaka seeing a man appear at night. Um, was it half was it half a body? Was it half a body? Yeah. Well, I did do a, a little look for us and our lovely audience at the house itself, number two eight four Green Street. 
I tried to look at sort of the purchase and property history uh, on Zoopla. And apparently, according to Zoopla, the property last sold in March of 2016 for £330,000, which is pretty decent compared to the street, as a, a lot of properties sold on the street in the last 12 months at the time of recording sold for about 10 grand less than that. Current estimates say that it's worth almost £400,000, um, but apparently it's one of the smallest properties on Green Street. Just 786 square feet. Well, there you go, thanks for that. Deal in Dublin. Cheers. So a little bit on where are they now. Janet is still alive now at 57 and going by the name of Janet Winter. She lives in Clacton-on-Sea, maybe from that holiday the council gave her. She's like, I fucking love it here, with her husband and three children. She remains adamant that what happened was legitimate and once went as far as saying she was 98% certain the events were real. Asked how much of the phenomenon at Groom Street was fake, she said, I'd say 2%. Which I guess that makes that all adds up, Janet. So fair play to you. <laughs> Margaret is still alive at 59 and living in Clacton on Sea as well. Maybe after such a ghostly experience, they want to be close to one another. Johnny sadly passed away four years after the Enfield Haunting, aged 14 from cancer. So that is really sad. Billy is still alive at 53 and living in Clacton on Sea. There's a bit of a theme going on here. And as we mentioned, Peggy did remain living at 284, but since she passed away in 2003. In 2015, a musician by the name of Black Channels released a 30-minute track called Two Knocks for Yes. It's a long, long track, which includes the cover art photo of Janet uh, jumping slash levitating in her bedroom. And the piece opens with a quote that uh, producer Dan read at the start of the episode. It's actually on their SoundCloud and it's uh, the description says that they explore the poltergeist phenomenon with this 30-minute radiophonic collage. Uh, featuring recordings of British cases, including the famous Enfield haunting. It's spooky. Um, if you put that on the background, I wouldn't be able to focus. It's uh, And it's then you wrote in your notes, good if you're having a Halloween party, tee-hee. I think that was the ghost, wasn't it, that did that? I don't know. You wrote tee-hee. And then 2015, a three-part miniseries was released uh, titled The Enfield Haunting. It seemed to go down pretty well with critics, holding a 7 out of 10 on IMDb and a 4.5 out of 5 on Amazon. And on Rotten Tomatoes, which is probably the one that people tend to go for more, 80% fresh. I watched it last night and they change a lot. They, uh, it's got Wormtail from Harry Potter, because I've been doing a Harry Potter run lately. He plays Morris. Timothy Spall. Sorry, Timothy. Scabbers, yeah. It's also got a lady that's on Alan Partridge. It's not, it's not Lynn. She plays the mother. It's got really, actually, well casted. It's a, it's a good, uh, yeah, but they change Tomatoes, a lot. They, yeah. yeah, they make it very spooky. So for the 2016 release of The Conjuring 2, um, which kind of follows Janet's story, it doesn't specifically tell the Hodgson family story, but depicts Janet and the experiences she went through, Janet and Margaret actually uh, reunited in front of the family home um, with Lorraine Warren, who I think was getting quite old at the time. She sadly passed away, I think, when she was 90. But they made like a little, um, I think it was maybe not for, the, not for a side thing for a DVD release, but they made like a little short film about them going back to the house uh, which is quite an interesting watch lovely stuff and yeah ben um it's your new little se- little new little segment ben carter's cryptic clues when he's not busy smearing poos thank you smooth you smooth you lose smooth your poos you poos you smooth what was my one for this week it was quite good wasn't it enfield haunting something about harry wasn't it so, they're very forgettable <laughs> <laughs> i remember thinking it was quite good so Oh, that's spooky, Harry. Enfield, Harry Enfield, haunting, spooky. Yeah, you have to explain it. But yeah, it's um, so yeah, it, it was it was a pretty good one. And and for this one, everyone's on the edge of their seats. Benjamin Carter's cryptic clues. Get everyone gather round for some clues that can be quite cryptic. But he's going to give them to you anyway. Hope you can figure them out. 
Yeah, absolutely. So for next week's episode, Chelsea should lock up that scientist. Chelsea should lock up that scientist. And there you go. I'll leave that with you. I'll leave that with you. Here's uh, one for you boys just quickly before we wrap up. Um, I reckon you'll, you'll both get it straight away. What room do ghosts avoid? The living room. room. Fantastic! Both got that. And yes, guys, you might have seen on our socials that we've been posting about we are going to be appearing this year at CrimeCon in London. On September 21st and 22nd, we'll be appearing. We'll be doing a panel, which we watch us pull something out of our ass because we have not got anything prepared yet, but we will have something ready to go. Oh, yeah. You can go over to the CrimeCon website and use our code ICMAP to get 10% off for your tickets. But yeah, we're very much looking forward to that. I'm very excited to see just what it's all about, really. Yeah, I, I saw that there are interactive crime scenes, which I'm, I'm very excited to get involved with. Uh, and yeah, you love being wait. involved in crime scenes, don't you? I do, yeah. I wonder if there's any um, smoo. And yes, guys, thank you so much for joining us. Don't forget to subscribe to the channel or follow us over on wherever you're listening to the podcast and sharing us around. We very much appreciate it. Um, your support doesn't go unnoticed, so thank you so much. And like we always say, We say this all the time. Keep doing what you're doing. Unless it's leaving messages on bathroom walls. Just Mm, There's probably a notepad there because there's pads in all the houses. Don't don't forget to to check them walls. Don't leave Morris alone. Don't mess him about. Don't throw a box at Morris. He's just trying to help you out. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, Oh, yeah, bugger. Anyway, all the best. Two pip. I Could Murder a Podcast is proudly part of the ACAST Creator Network. For hundreds of extra minisodes and other content, along with our private Discord server and live Q&As, exclusive merch and much more, consider subscribing to icmap.co.uk.